0: Hello, and welcome to Extra Innings from the Ballpark, a podcast from the U.S. Center at the London School of Economics. I'm Sophie Dunseman, and today we're going back in history. We're staying at LSE, and we're still talking about research on the U.S., or at least the people from there, but we're going to hop around in the history of Americans at LSE. presenting a full lecture from Professor Mick Cox, Professor Emeritus in International Relations and Director of LSE Ideas. Mick is writing a book on the history of the LSE, and this lecture dives into the research that went into one chapter. As we'll hear from Professor Cox, the LSE has helped shape the United States, and Americans have helped define the LSE since its foundation in 1895. Professor Peter Trubowitz, director of the LSE U.S. Center, introduced Mick and his lecture.
1: So the title is The Yanks Are Coming. Of course, what everybody's worried about right now is the Yanks are going. (laughs) What can I say? (laughs) Please so. uh,
0: So now, without further delay, Professor Mick Cox. Uh,
2: Thank thank you, Peter, for those very kind uh, comments. Um, Actually, (laughs) when I thought up the... Uh, title for this lecture The the Yanks are Coming uh, The LSE in, in the American Century I think is the subtitle Little did I suspect that recent events in the United States would be dominating the political debate over here in London and at the LSE like most of the complacent experts with whom I have no doubt been linked, I assumed, though I did have my doubts that the USA would have its presidential election and then things would go quiet for a bit. Little did I know. All I can say at this stage is that there is at least one yank currently living up there at the top of Trump Towers who may not be beating a path any time soon to come and provide us here at the LSE with his insights. On such matters as the construction of walls, the future of that obsolete organization known as NATO, why Putin may not be such a bad chap after all, or why climate change is really a fantasy. But even if President Trump elects, may not be to everybody's taste over here, or indeed over there. Um, It's quite clear that the United States and a very large number of Americans clearly do feel at home over here and particularly at the school since it was first founded back in the late 19th century in the year 1895. It is impossible, in fact, to calculate how many uh, Americans have studied, at least students have studied here, over 120 years. I tried to do a calculation the other day It came to something rough and ready like between forty to 45,000 who have studied here over that period of time. Um, And they have graced, uh, and sometimes not graced, the school with their presence. But it's certainly been a lot. And they have kept on coming. So much so that the school today, the LSE, I call it the school, the terms are interchangeable, of course, can lay claim to just under 25,000 US alumni, by far and away the biggest alumni group I- in the world today. So that tells us quite a lot about the length and the depth of that particular relationship ongoing. But as they say, it isn't just uh, numbers alone that makes a difference, although it's of course significant. The LSE can also look back on a galaxy of star American names who have studied or taught here from John F. Kennedy, and his elder brother, Joe Kennedy, Jr., who actually did finish his degree, through the great African-American Ralph Bunch, who studied anthropology here (coughs) under Malinowski, who went on to be awarded a Nobel Prize in 1950. Others have come here through the doors of the LSE, or through the gates of the LSE, including, amongst many others, David Rockefeller who studied here economics in the 1930s before going back to Chicago to do a PhD. Uh, George Soros, who studied here in the late 1940s and the early 1950s under the famous philosopher Karl Popper, and he went on to make a mint, not Popper, George Soros. And, of course, Paul Volcker, one of the federal chairs we can lay claim to. Although in his memoirs, and indeed in a couple of the biographies of Paul Volcker, the Fed chair, a very effective and important one, of course, in the history of the Fed, he said he wasted his time while he was here, and he got in a Volkswagen and went off to Europe for a good time. So although he studied here, what he got out of the LSE is still unclear. Nonetheless, as we know, he retains a very fond affection for the school and and continues to, to work with our friends over in the United States. Nor does the list end there, of course. You can add to that the current head of the Fed, uh, who may not be there for very much longer, uh, Janet Yellen, who lectured here in economics, and indeed, I think, met her husband here, who went on to get a Nobel Prize, George Akerlof. You can add Paul Krugman to the list, and a whole lot more besides, including, by the way, another famous Kennedy, the one people actually probably don't know about. And this is Justice Anthony Kennedy, who studied here in the late 1950s. Again, his memories of the period here are very amusing. He said he arrived at the school and he found that the political debates going on at the school were rather different to those which he found back in the US. The conservatives were basically the Communist Party. And the radicals were the Trotskyists. And then there were people even beyond that. But he found it all deeply amusing and very informative. And he said he learnt a lot while he was here. And again, he comes back to this relationship with the school time and time uh, again. But of course, it was the same Justice Kennedy on the Supreme Court, who in 2015 became, with Ginsburg, Sotomayor, Kagan and Breyer, one of the five justices who voted in favour of same-sex marriage. But it was Kennedy, more than anybody else, perhaps, who left us, according to one writer, with, I quote, a profound meditation on dignity, companionship, and the sheer power of love. And I would certainly urge you to go and read his ruling following that that particularly momentous uh, decision. Others have come here, too. In the 1920s, there were several, including the very great anthropologist with what I have called the even greater name, Hortensa Powdermaker, who studied here at the LSE under, again, the great Branislav Malinowski. And she went on to write wonderful books on a number of anthropological subjects, including a wonderful book, by the way, on Hollywood, which I would certainly recommend you to read. One of the great... Uh, anthrop- women anthropologists who came through the school and went back to enrich the study of it in her her own country. Others came too, and including many women who have enriched the life of the school. Including one I came across who's hardly ever mentioned in the official histories, but I I found her I found her out. Her name is Ella Winter. Ella Winter came here in 1919, 1920, to study basically political science. Although basically then you did an all-embracing MSSC Econ you you studied most subjects in fact she was then uh, spotted uh, by somebody who will come up later in the lecture a man called Graham Wallace who was then trying to recruit people to go over to Versailles to play a role in the peace process or in in the peace negotiations then taking place she went over there and played quite a role as a very young woman and when she was over there for those of you who know your history of journalism in the United States she met a very powerful per- She was a powerful person in her own right, but went over and found and fell in love with and established a long relationship with the great muckraking journalist Lincoln Steffens, whom she later married. And when he died, she married a film producer who came back over here, by the way, in the 1950s because of McCarthyism. So she, in a sense, was educated here, but came back because of McCarthyism, because she was a communist. She came back over here in the 50s and lived and in the end died here, up in North London. I should also add a few other names just to give you a feeling and an impression. One of the most influential sociologists of the 20th century, Talcott Parsons, also spent some time here at around the same time in the early 1920s before going on to Heidelberg and indeed came back on several occasions to lecture. Though it was once said of Talcott Parsons, he may have been a great sociologist, but he was a fairly hopeless lecturer. Then in the radical 1930s, and this is something else I've dug out of the archive, which doesn't come up in actually the official history, I noticed this too. I've dug up all the unofficial stuff, which doesn't seem to appear in the official history. A very fine history, though it is nonetheless, by, uh, by, by the form of one of the former directors here. But I, I came across two, two people who in my days you know, were very influential on me at the time. One was called Paul Sweezy, and the other one was called Leo Huberman. Uh, They are famous here, or infamous, I suppose, for some people. They arrived here basically not as left-wing. In fact, Paul Sweezy came from a banking family in New England. And In fact, if you look at Paul Sweezy until he died, of course, he actually looked like a banker, as they would say. And he arrived and, again, was much influenced by the political debates and the political discussions going on at the time in the early 1930s. And, again, in the 1930s, you can imagine the Great Depression five-year plans in the Soviet Union, the, the drift and the move to the left, politically and ideologically, here and elsewhere, had a big impact on him. And he was much influenced by a number of lecturers here, including a man I'll also mention later called Harold Lasky. But he was handed a copy of Trotsky's history of the Russian Revolution. And he read it and he said, well, if this is Marxism, I'm a Marxist. And went back to the United States. He said, a Marxist but an ignorant one. Um, He went on, of course, to study back at Harvard um, and went on to do a PhD. He wrote one of the famous books in the Marxist canon called A Theory of Capitalist Development, uh, which came out in 1942 and was published time and time and time again uh, by Monthly Review Press. And in the late 1940s, went on to establish the influential Marxist monthly called Monthly Review*. There were other leftists who came here, and they weren't all leftists, but there was one i have come across again. It's a very interesting character. His name, you may never have heard of him, it was called Frank Meyer. <coughs> now, if anybody knows the history of neoconservatism and neoconservative ideology in the United States, will know about Frank Meyer. Frank Meyer, however, like a lot of people who moved to the right, and indeed to the neoconservative right during the Cold War and after, particularly after the Vietnam War, and he moved to the right much earlier than that, Frank Meyer was a dedicated member of the communist movement, as, as somebody once said, a communist to his bootstraps. Back then, in the in the 20s and 30s, he started out at Oxford and he arrived here at the LSE. Frank was nothing except dedicated to the cause. Indeed, so dedicated to the cause that he decided he would continue to selling a Marxist newspaper along Houghton Street, which had been banned by the then director of the school. Just to prove, I suppose, how liberal the director was, Frank Meyer got expelled. But 20 years later, the same Frank Meyer, having changed sides ideologically through the 40s and the 50s, as many did, the god that failed. And he changed his mind ideologically for a very important reason. He read a book. Being an intellectual, this is what happens to intellectuals. They're dangerous people. They read and write books. And what was the book that changed his mind so profoundly? a book written by another LSE professor, Hayek. Hayek, who arrived here in 1930-31 in the Economics Department in 1944, published, I think, what must be regarded as one of the great influential books of the 20th century. It's called The Road to Serfdom. The Road to Serfdom went down very badly in Britain and indeed was hardly read in Europe. But it went down very well in the United States in the late 1940s, primarily because Reader's Digest serialised it and brought it out in 600,000 copies, a shortened, abbreviated version. This converted Frank to the cause of liberal economics and the market. Later, when, after Frank died, he was praised to the high heavens by many no lesser figure than Ronald Reagan, who praised him at the funeral following the death of Frank Meyer, he said, he was the father of the new conservatism of which I have become the expression in the the 70s and the 1980s. So many Americans from different persuasions certainly seem to find the school a congenial place, though for very different reasons, it has to be said. Thus, what made the LSE a very special place for Daniel Patrick Moynihan, later Senator Moynihan, and U.S. ambassador to India and the United Nations in the early 1970s, was its conservative political theorist here in the Department of Government in the shape of Michael Oakeshott. Not everybody was a leftist. But this, it seems, is not what made the school the place to be in the 1960s, when a more radical group of American students influenced by the Students for a Democratic Society and the Free Speech Movement in Berkeley, wended their way across the Atlantic, infused with radicalism and determined to take the the, the radical view over here. Many of them, rather falsely, assumed the school was a bastion of critical, radical Marxist thinking. And so a newer generation of Yanks, if you like, fresh from their struggles back home, particularly in California, came here in their droves and made trouble. Indeed, the authorities at the time, particularly Lionel Robbins, who was one of the most influential big beasts of the school for 30, 40 years and probably the most influential person to have influenced the school. The library is named after him, of course. He regarded the troubles at the LSE as the product of foreign American agitators, doing their damnedest to make trouble along Houghton Street. And he says this in his own autobiography. He was most annoyed. Now, one one of these agitators was a certain Paul Hock, H-O-C-H. He was also expelled for his activities, just like Meyer in the 1930s. There's a kind of tradition of expelling Americans, I suppose. But after having been expelled and sent back to the United States, He became really quite a prolific author uh, on the left. Um, He repaid the school in in richly by writing a polemic against it, entitled ironically, and it was deeply ironic, "Academic Freedom in Action," (laughs) which he wrote in 1970. In this rather well-written tract, and Hock was a good writer, I have to say. You know, you may not agree with him, but he was a damn good writer he challenged the popular view that the LSE was some hotbed of socialism. Nothing could be further from the truth, he opined. The place was bourgeois, reactionary to the core, with what he called, quote-unquote, a time-honoured connection to racial eugenics, Southern African business, and high finance, for which it had become, quote-unquote, the chief apologist in the United Kingdom. Things did calm down, to be sure, after the 60s here, as they did in the United States, but the Americans just kept on coming, including a number of future politicians and writers, a very large sprinkling of successful businessmen and businesswomen, as Beda knows, and more than one or two future government officials, including, by the way, Janet Napolitano, who later ran Homeland Security for a while, and I think now is the president of the University of California. There was another person who came here, perhaps less well-known at the time, but became very famous through a film. The film was called Fair Game. Her name was Valerie Plain. She studied uh, international relations. In fact, she did a master's. Uh, Ms. Ms Plain went back to the United States and joined the CIA. And she was quite an effective agent, that is, until her husband started to blow the whistle on President G.W. Bush and what was actually going on in the so-called War on Terror. And members of the Bush administration, or at least certain members of them, decided then to expose Ms Plain. It was quite an extraordinary story. And if you don't believe me, then go and see the film Fair Game. It tells you the story in a rather accurate way. And also she later wrote her reflections on A, being here, and B, what happened to her, in, in, in those pretty pretty traumatic years some other people studied here, many others who went on to do all sorts of things were, I looked actually at the first Obama administration and not surprising you have to say about four reasonably serious and influential people in the first Obama administration had studied here at the school Orszag was one of them in particular but others as well, a kind of mid-level not at the very top but certainly at a mid-level Um, it also looks like the school may have just bid political farewell to one of its more celebrated sons, Mark Kirk. Senator for Illinois, a moderate Republican who recently lost his seat to a Democrat, one of the very few success stories for the Democrats uh, a few weeks ago. I should, of course, point out finally that LSE also figured and figures in one of the most popular American TV series, West Wing. Martin Sheen played President Josiah Bartlett brilliantly well, you will recall. But you may not recall that President Bartlett received his Masters and PhD in Economics from the London School of Economics. Could one think of a better place for him to have done it? But we're now living in very different times. So I very much doubt whether President-elect Trump will be appointing many people from the LSE to his new team. Though it was claimed the other night, and I don't know if you heard this, but I definitely heard it, and I was certainly sober. It was claimed the other night by a strong Trump supporter, On I heard it on the radio, that one of Trump's more influential aides, Steve Bannon, thank you, <laughs> had to be a decent fellow because he had studied at the London School of Economics. I heard it. I kind of... Really? I should know this. I'm, after all, the historian of the LSE. Why don't I know this? And I have to, I have to confess, this caused me some agitation. But I needn't have worried. Bannon received his master's degree in national security studies from Georgetown University and his MBA from Harvard. So blame George Georgetown and Harvard not the LSE. <laughs> now, all of this, of course, raises the obvious and perhaps more serious question uh, as to why the LSE has appealed to so many different Americans over such a long period of time. Now, there's a number of obvious and, I think, perhaps less obvious reasons. Three immediately come to mind. First, it is, fortunately, based in an interesting and important international city. So coming to the LSE means you come to London, which I think is a very attractive city and now becoming, at least relatively speaking, a rather more cheap one to live in. Uh, But the idea of coming to London is clearly deeply appealing. There's no question about it. Somebody once said to me, you can think of the London School of Economics with all all due respect to Birmingham. You can't think of the Birmingham School of Economics or the Liverpool School of Economics all having the same appeal. Nothing wrong with either of those cities, but you know what I'm trying to get at. Secondly, it is a pure social science institution called the London School of Economics and Political Science. And if you like what I call it, it has comparative advantage simply by virtue of concentrating on the broad areas of social science, political political science, international relations, and all the rest of it. It's kind of got concentration. You know what it is. It's on the side of the can. And thirdly, I suppose we have to say, and I'm bound to say this, but I've been here for 15 years, and Peter too. It has had and still has some pretty good academics. <laughs> but one should beware thinking that all students make such rational calculations, as I found out. One American student, when asked why he came to the LSE, replied, well, if it's cool enough for Mick Jagger to have studied here in the 1960s, then it's cool enough for me. That's a pretty good answer, I thought. Mick Jagger, by the way, he was here for a year. He, did, he actually did pass, but he decided in the end that he'd rather become the leader of the most famous rock band in the world than finish his economics degree. I wonder why. Clearly a, a phony decision by Mick. Mick Anthony, by the way. Another student was asked, why did you come here? He said, oh, well, I read somewhere that Kennedy had been here. My dad is a Democrat. I'm a Democrat, so that's why I came. So, you know, people may have all sorts of reasons for wanting... To, the Kennedy thing, by the way, I have to make this point. I mean, John Kennedy did study here. He was in London with his father, Joe, Joe Kennedy Senior, He was not the most popular human being in London in that period, 38, for reasons you can, we can talk about. K- Kennedy did study here, and he would have finished. There's no doubt about it. He would have finished. But, I mean, he just wasn't very well. And he had to go back, go back home to, 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 um, to take, to take uh, some health um, cure... His brother, however, who was a very interesting man, Joe Joe Kennedy Jr., did study here, did finish his degree, and continued, he went back to the States to do further study, then he joined the American Air Force over here, and was lost over the Channel in a bombing raid in 1944. Um, And and many people later said, this is truth after the fact, how do we know, 2020 vision, that in fact the Kennedy family, and particularly Joe Kennedy Sr., this man at the very top of the family, had always identified Joe Jr. as the potential future president of the United States, um, and not John himself. Well, that's neither here nor there, but it's an interesting side story. But anyway, clearly something else has been going on here, and that something has perhaps less to do with Mick Jagger or JFK and that thing which many people deny exists uh, but still manages to live on somehow, namely the special relationship between the United Kingdom and the United States. I don't wish to state the obvious, but the simple fact is that the two countries have been bound together for rather a long time, 400 years, 300, a few arguments along the way, sure. Uh, They share a common language, more or less, (laughs) Uh, have fought on the same side in two great wars, including the Cold War as a third part of the great trilogy of wars of the 20th century, while tending to have a not entirely dissimilar set of ideas about how the world might be organised. Not entirely the same, but they're not miles apart. <coughs> so it's hardly surprising, given this broader context, hardly surprising, and these connections and these associations, which is more than just about the LSE or education. It's hardly surprising this has worked to the advantage of the school and indeed to most other British institutions of higher education in the 20th century. But I asked the question, could any of this had been foretold, I wonder, when the school was set up in the late 19th century, in 1895 to be precise, and I'm not sure it could be, and one of the things I want to kind of share with you is looking at the diaries and the letters between two of the founders of the school, profoundly interesting people by the way, Beatrice and Sidney Webb. And reading through the diaries, and Beatrice Webb's diaries are formidably interesting, and she's a remarkable woman in all sorts of ways, and it's a remarkable partnership, not a very passionate one, but a remarkable partnership. In fact, later on, she wrote a great book called Our Partnership, not Our Marriage, I noticed. <laughs> reading through the diaries and letters between at least two of the founders of the school, Sydney and Beatrice Webb, one is very powerfully struck by how much effort they themselves put into ensuring a strong relationship was established between the nascent School of Economics, established in 1895, with hardly a cent to its name, by the way. We hardly had anything. We only had one room in 1895. And the United States. Now, neither of the webs, it should be added, were especially pro-American. They were too English and too much attached to the British Empire for that. But they were shrewd enough to know that by linking their creation the LSE, to the rising power of the United States, the school might turn out to be the winner. I think they were quite conscious of that too. Americans, as Beatrice once noted very tartly, and many of her comments are pretty tart in her diaries, Americans might be what she called the least intellectual but the most intelligent of people with a rampant capitalist system of which she thoroughly disapproved, given her own (coughs) Fabian socialist views. But in her view, and even more that of Sydney, it represented, America represented, the wave of the future, just like the LSE itself might do too. Moreover, there was much that could be learned from the US. Beatrice herself made her first visit to the United States with her businessman father in 1873 at the age of 15 she was very precocious she was clearly impressed by much of what she saw (coughs) new york she loved and central park she judged to be so much superior to anything we had back in london san francisco impressed her much less especially it's chinatown which she saw and i quote it's a den of iniquity and vice Travelling southeast, however, she finally arrived at somewhere she'd always wanted to visit, which was called Salt Lake City. She was fascinated by polygamy and wondered whether this was not a rather good way of breeding strong specimens. She was a eugenicist, after all. She was, though, completely bowled over by the tabernacle in Salt Lake City. The most wonderful building I've ever seen in my whole life, she declared in her diary. Well, we can debate that. (laughs) But obviously, if you've seen the tabernacle, it's pretty impressive. But obviously, the US, even on this young woman, had made a powerful impression. It also impressed the young Sydney. When he made his first visit to the US a few years later, they were not yet married, in 1888. By then, Sydney, a dedicated Fabian Socialist, Well, he said nothing about Central Park and showed no interest in the Mormons, their tabernacle or polygamy. Religion, architecture and sex never much interested Sydney. But he was impressed in an English kind of way by what was unfolding at breakneck speed in the rapidly rising power across the Atlantic. He was particularly taken by the quality of some of its universities and what they taught. But interestingly, it was not the old Ivy League universities which impressed him. He was actually deeply unimpressed by some of them. And they reminded him too much of Oxford and Cambridge, which is precisely what the LSE wasn't going to be. Rather, it's what he saw at the research-driven institutions, especially, by the way, the MIT. And he said of the Massachusetts Institute of Technology, the economics course there, he noted at the time, is the best I've ever seen, implication being this is what we've got to start doing, back in Britain, where economics, by the way, was only taught, you know, in a, in a pretty loose and uh, off-the-hand off way. I should say, only in Cambridge. Basically. Ten years later, in tandem, now married, a partnership, and three years after having set up the school to teach practical subjects to practical people, the LSE was always a very practical place. The Web set off again together on a lengthy tour of the United States, from sea to shining sea. Thought I'd throw that in. You know. Sounds good. Their impressions, and their wonderful impressions, we can find in Beatrice's never less than candid diaries and letters. Many things typically appalled her, including the great magnate Andrew Carnegie, a reptile, she said. <laughs> Pittsburgh, she abhorred, a veritable hell of a place. She wasn't most, much impressed with most American cities. Quote, Many of them are overgrown and ugly. Each one more corrupt and misgoverned than the last. She thought the Senate was a joke. And she also was rather not taken with what she called that great American myth, and I don't know quite why they believe it, that all men are created equal. Such nonsense. But many things did appeal to her and did not appall her. She was deeply impressed by the personality and intellect of both Theodore Roosevelt whom she met and indeed she was deeply impressed too though for maybe different reasons by Woodrow Wilson who was then president of of, of Princeton she was also impressed to be fair with the condition of the working class in America compared to what existed back in Great Britain hardly surprising given how awful the conditions were in Great Britain in in the 1990s and some of its universities were pretty damn good too and they visited several and it was evident to Sydney at least, and indeed to Beatrice as well, that there were great opportunities here for the school back in London. But ever the real is, Sydney knew there was much that still needed to be done. We're back in the late eight, nine, eight 1990s, you see, long before the school has really taken off to any real degree. The school, he says, basically doesn't have any status in the US. It's too young, it's too small, it's too ill endowed. It doesn't even have degrees. Moreover, if American universities and American students looked anywhere abroad at the time, and we need to remember it, it was not to England but to Germany. This is where science was done. This is where real higher education in Sydney's view really had made a big difference to the economic development of Germany. Sydney was clear. We have to try and attract those good Americans who were going to Germany and bring them here. And the teaching of the social sciences, therefore, would have to be put on a thoroughly professional foundation. The LSE, through the University of London, would have to offer proper degrees and not just certificates. Indeed, no American student will come here, he argued, until they can get a proper degree and, indeed, a PhD, which they couldn't do at the time. This would not only work to the advantage of the LSE, however, and here Sidney made a very interesting intervention, it would also work to the advantage of England, in its long economic struggle with another rising power, namely Germany. Germany was always in, Sidney's thought, by the way. He was not anti-German, but he could see that Germany was a rising economic power. And he was quite clear in his own mind, Germany was forging ahead of England, scientifically and educationally. Oxbridge didn't stand a chance, but LSE did. Quote from Sidney, we could win. We can win, this is how he viewed the LSE to a degree, and wean the best American students away from Germany. But only if we devise degree courses in a research-led institution that forgot Plato, forgot the classics, and forgot the Greeks, and instead focused on serious, concrete subjects such as banking,
1: <laughs>
2: trade, accountancy, and of course, economics and economic science. Sydney also added for good measure that it was important that one did not drive away potential students by focusing too much on controversial subjects such as the labour question, the working class movement. Sydney may have been a socialist. He and Beatrice may have written several volumes on the history of trade unions in Britain. But it would be the kiss of death, he implied, if the, if the school itself got a reputation or being a place then where trade union studies was to the fore in the curriculum. By the way, industrial relations was never came to school until after World War II, and I think this, you could see part of the reason why. How successful these various efforts were is difficult to know precise, but we do see more American students beginning to arrive at the LSE in the years before World War I. Indeed, just over a decade after their famous 1898 visit, we find one LSE student, writing in the LSE magazine, it's a student magazine called Clare Market Review. And he said, after having done a recent trip to the United States, that it was interesting to find what a high place in the estimation of American students was occupied by the LSE, by its professors and by the works, which have been written by those connected to the school. And that's, that's 1911. It would seem, therefore, as if Sydney's grand design, and I think it was that, based on much of the experiences he derived from the United States, might be bearing fruit. But it wasn't the school alone that did the heavy lifting. Rather, it was the coming of war in 1914. Resistant though American Americans may have been to getting entangled in this European affair, when, it finally, when they finally did get entangled, this presented something of an opportunity for the LSE, and indeed for Britain, insofar as Germany's reputation and appeal in the United States dropped calamitously, while that of Britain's rose rapidly. Not many Americans after World War I were likely to be attracted to a Germany against whom they had just fought a war. On the other hand, Anglo-American cooperation in the form of ever deeper financial ties between New York and the City of London, personal relations, think Downton Abbey, and intellectual links such as that existed and were created at Chatham House in 1920 as an Anglo-American think tank, all began to take off. And indeed, I think, therefore, bore fruit here. In fact, 200 American servicemen spent a year here after the war because they couldn't get back home and they did, did a period of studies. Here. Again, it was indicative of the shape of things to come. But the war did have a major downside, apart from the fact it killed millions of people, obviously. It had left Britain and the school in a dire situation economically, something the incoming LSE director, William Beveridge, found out when he took over in 1919. We haven't got much money. Things did not look good, but help was soon at hand in the shape of one of the great American institutions, the Rockefeller Foundation. The foundation, as we know, and as I'm sure many of you know, has had many critics, as has the man who made all the money which made the foundation possible, namely John D. Rockefeller. His opponents then and since have viewed him as representing everything that was wrong with early American capitalism. His defenders, on the other hand, have argued that he gave most of this wealth away and by doing so advanced the course of humanity and not just in the social sciences. And not all of the money that was finally given away from 1923 onwards under a thing called the Laura Spellman Foundation, uh, which was dedicated to one of the Rockefellers' wife, of course, not all this money came to the LSE, but a very large amount did. And I've been through the Rockefeller files here, and I can, I can tell you how much did come over here, quite a lot, to the social sciences, and specifically to the social sciences. This is very interesting. Money went, was dispersed through the law of Spelman to many social science foundations and, and universities around Europe, but the bulk of that, or at least the largest p- proportion of that, came here to the LSE from 1923 onwards, right through until the late 1930s. Certainly there was enough to help support the appointment of a very large number of academics in the interwar years. Certainly there was enough to pay for a vast outpouring of research from the LSE from 1923 onwards. This has always been a research-driven university, it still is, as we know. And also to help pay for the library as well, and this is the irony of all ironies, I think, today, as well as pay for an extensive building programme most of those buildings are now being docked, knocked, knocked down as I speak, as you know. Later, William Beveridge's secretary, whom he later married, Janet Beveridge, talked in rather forthright terms of the school become, having become Rockefeller's baby. About one quarter of the budget of the school for about 15 years came, therefore, through the Rockefeller uh, donations. And indeed, that money has continued since, but a much smaller proportion. But the relationship went both ways. And while Beveridge was busily tapping Rockefeller largesse to the great advantage, let's be honest, of an ever-expanding school with an increasingly global reputation, and the question is, could it have achieved that without this huge amount of money that came in, some members of the school community were making a reputation for themselves over in the United States. And I mentioned two, largely because they're political scientists. (laughs) One was the man called Harold Lasky, the most popular lecturer at the school uh, for over 30 years. He came in 1920 and died in 1950. And the other was a lesser known but influential man called Graham Wallace, whom I mentioned earlier, after whom, sadly, a rather small room is named after him at the school. I think we could do much better by Graham Wallace, by the way. Lasky you may not have heard of. In fact, most people haven't by now, unless you're a specialist on these kinds of subjects, or or you're interested in political theory of a certain time. Lasky, however, was by any measure a phenomenon. Born and educated in the UK, his first academic position was at McGill University, Montreal, which he did not much like. And his second was at Harvard, where he did. He was in the law school, by by the way. And where he made an enormous impression on some very influential people, most notably Justices Felix Frankfurter and Oliver Wendell Holmes. And by the way, there's two volumes of letters between Lasky and Oliver Wendell Holmes. They're wonderful letters to, to read. He's obviously Wendell Holmes, a much older man with different politics to that of Lasky, who became increasingly radical in the 20s and 30s. But they're a wonderful set of letters. Lasky supported the Boston Policeman Strike in 1920, which wasn't a very wise thing to do, at least in terms of his own career. And he was driven out of Harvard, and he came to the LSE in, in 1920, where, by the way, he proved to be a thorn in the side of many people, including the director. But actually, unlike many people on the left at the time and since, Lasky retained an enormous affection for the United States, where he quite literally had a mass of followers in, 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 that, in those years. Quite remarkable actually, quite remarkable how many people in the States at that time, not now, followed Lasky and Lasky's thought. He also became close friends with Franklin Delano Roosevelt. Lots of letters go back and forth between him and Franklin, dear Franklin, always giving him advice as to what he ought to be doing with the New Deal, and obviously his affection for FDR was both personal and political because of the New Deal. He also got to know, interestingly, JFK's father, Joe Kennedy, Sr., who became ambassador here in the UK in 1938. Indeed, one of the reasons Joe Joe Sr., Joe Kennedy Sr., gave for bringing both his sons, JFK and Joe Jr., to the LSE in the 1930s, he claimed, was that they could better get to know the ideological enemy firsthand. By, having, by being taught by Harold Lasky. Uh, pretty wise, pretty shrewd. Lasky, even had, Lasky, of course, had no problem giving advice to everybody. I mean, he, he loved important people, and he thought they loved him too, and some of them actually did. But he even advised, this is a wonderful little thing I've come across, he even advised Joe Kennedy Senior, the old man, the ambassador, He came to to Lasky and said, look, my son, JFK, has written a book, While England Slept. What do you think of it? Lasky looked at it, turned it over and said, oh, it's terrible. (laughs) Don't bother to publish it. Well, John F. Kennedy did publish the book, it was his first, While England Slept, published in 1940. He said, it's not up to scratch. Well, that's Lasky for you. If Lasky, for many Americans in the years before his death in 1950, was the public face of the LSE. By the way, he even got the journalist Ed Murrow to endorse one of his books. And by the way, the Lasky name comes up in that Ed Murrow film, quite interestingly. Uh, actually, they tried, to black, they, they tried to blackball Ed Murrow, as you know, during the McCarthyite period. And one of the things they used against Ed Murrow was the fact that he knew Lasky and he'd written an endorsement or an introduction to one of Lasky's books on the United States. Now, that, that was Lasky, but Graham Wallace was the quiet voice who almost single-handedly pioneered the entirely new discipline. And this, again, was something one discovers when you do research. That's one of the great things about doing research. You find out new things. And what I discovered, that basically Wallace, but many others, but Wallace in particular, from here, and given his own views about the role of psychology, the role of the irrational, he wrote a book, by the way, called Human Nature, which is an interesting book, even should be read now. He actually more or less forged and created the new discipline of political psychology and carried the message across the Atlantic through his numerous lecture tours and his writings. And in fact, it was through Wallace that the Rockefeller Foundation first made contact with the school. And by the way, it was no less a figure than the great Walter Lippmann, who later said of Wallace, following, Wallace uh, following Graham Wallace's early death in 1932, that he was the greatest teacher he had ever had, who altered decisively, quote, the course of Anglo-American thinking on political ideas. Interestingly, Lippmann's major work, The Good Society, published in 1937, owed some part of its inspiration to Wallace's own 1914 study, The Great Society, a psychological analysis written on the eve of war. Now, to bring all this to a conclusion, this you might say is the past, that was then, now is now, perfectly fair observation. Yet I'd want to say that the links remain, the connections endure, and the cross-fertilization across the Atlantic between the school and the US goes on. It certainly went on in the nineteen nineties when Tony Giddens, later director, launched his idea of the third way, thus linking the school and the idea of the school in the LSE to President Clinton and the United States in one in what some saw as a serious attempt to rethink progressive politics in an age of globalization. It looked like it was still in good shape too when Chris, Christopher Pissarides was awarded a Nobel Prize in Economics back in 2010, for work he did with two other economists, Peter Diamond and Dale Mortensen, both Americans. And dare I say here tonight, has been given another shot in the arm with the appointment of, of an American called Peter Truvitz, who has done such a fine job, and I mean this, in establishing a world-class US centre here at the LSE. And the students keep coming. About 900 every year on regular courses, and another 1,000 or so more on summer school and I'm glad I can say this from my script, I'm also doing my bit, teaching a wonderful group of students from the University of California, Davis, all about the ins and outs of European politics in an age of Brexit, and many of them are sitting there, so thank you for coming along tonight. <laughs> Yet as another Nobel Prize winner has put it, and I mean Bob Dylan, the times, they are changing. <laughs> and as anybody familiar with the score must by now be aware, there is another place in the world which is on the rise right now, in the shape of Asia as a region, and China as a country. Nearly one-third of our students today come from there. There is also another equally vital region with which the LSE has had a very special relationship over its long history, namely Europe and the European Union. And if the current British government fails in its negotiations with our European partners over the next two or three years, that special relationship could very easily be put at risk. And finally, I return to where I begin with who else Trump how will this impact on our relationship the kind of thing you hinted at in the very beginning Peter how will this impact on our relationship with the United States well we can only wait and see I suppose with the pound tanking and going down by 15% and most Americans being more deeply opposed to Trump than any other incoming president I can ever remember in my lifetime and I go back quite a long way we could well see applications from the United States shooting up Maybe some will even be claiming political asylum. (laughs) Every cloud, we are told Peter, has a silver lining. And perhaps this may be one time when that rather tired old cliché turns out to be true. We shall see. But if they do come in whatever number, one thing they can be sure, the LSE now, as before, will be happy to welcome them. And so continue that connection successfully launched by our founders well over 120 years ago, when Britain still had an empire, and America was the new kid on the block searching for a role, but already endowed with wealth and talent in abundance, which the LSE has tapped into, benefiting itself, no doubt about that, but enriching the United States in so many ways too. This has been, it remains, a special relationship, and it has worked. Let us hope it continues to do so as we move forward into another troubled century. Thank you very much for listening.
0: sincere thank you to Professor Mick Cox for sharing this history, his research, and his insight to this very special relationship. The Ballpark is produced by Denise Barron with contributions from co-hosts Chris Gilson and Sophie Dunsiman. That's me. And also with help from the LSC's KEI Fund and the U.S. Embassy in London. Our theme tune is by Ranger and the Rearrangers, a Seattle-based gypsy jazz band. Look them up at rangerswings.com. The contents and opinions expressed in this podcast do not reflect those of the U.S. Center or the London School of Economics. If you liked this lecture, then you'll love our next episode. We bring back Mick and others to discuss the well-worn path between the LSE and the U.S. Thanks for listening.